0: Thank you, Reverend Tabby. (laughs) Pastor Tabby is what she prefers. So thank you for that. She's going to get me back later. She did in first service. Well, if I haven't met you, my name is Craig. And uh, my wife, Glory, and I have been a part of City Church for uh, a little over seven years now. And it's been an awesome journey. And we're really blessed to call City Church home. Uh, we get to uh, invest our time in a lot of uh, different things. We lead a microchurch. Uh, Glory serves really faithfully back there in City Kids. Uh, I am the fourth string drummer uh, for City Music. So yeah. you see me on that rotation when, like, at least two people have died. (laughs) Like, can he clap? All right, throw him on there. Um, And I've colloquially become known as the belly flop guy, Uh, come baptism bash, yeah? So every summer we have a baptism bash out at Camp Law, Low Fridge. I don't even know. It's been a decade. I can't say it. That place with the giant pool and the big old high dive every year, it's just become customary. I uh, receive uh, minor tissue damage for your enjoyment and pleasure. So we got about a month. Uh, so I'm really doing a lot of crunches, trying to prepare myself uh, for that. But uh, also I get to serve as our pathway director here at City Church. And if you don't know what pathway is, it's a four week class that is designed to help you discover God's unique gifting in your life. As we go through the story of God and help see how God has been working in you specifically from the very start and so if that's something you haven't gone through uh, you really need to consider doing that we have another class starting up in august you can sign up for that on cc.guide but of all the things that i get to do uh anytime that i'm invited to preach which i i take it as such an honor and such a privilege and responsibility uh, really i have to say it is what brings me more joy and more passion than anything else uh, on this planet and so with that spirit i want to stop and pray over this message and over you before we dive in father i thank you for the opportunity to share your word god i pray that this morning you would remove me that my words lord would be forgotten that your words lord may be etched on our hearts i pray that you would prepare every single mind, every single heart and soul that is in this room, that we would know, God, that it is by divine providence that every single person is sitting in the exact chair that they are in. It is not by happenstance, Lord. It is not coincidental, Lord. It is your divine providence. And so, Lord, we pray that you would speak today. Lord, move me out of the way that your words would remain in Jesus' name, amen. Well, as uh, Tabby said, we're uh, on our second week of Summer Sundays, and if you weren't here last week, Pastor Rachel she gave an awesome awesome talk on accepting that invitation of Jesus to take his yoke upon us, his light and burdenless yoke to really receive his rest and to receive that reprieve, that freedom from hurry. So if you didn't get to be here, I would definitely check that out online. And then today, I'm going to be diving into one of my favorite stories, probably my favorite story in the entire Bible, one that you've no doubt heard, but you probably haven't given it a lot of thought, especially since it's in 2 Kings. And usually when you're in your reading plan, you're like, okay, let's go ahead and let the Bible read to me while I do something else more interesting or entertaining. And then, you know, I'll start really reading into it, um, you know, in like the Psalms or something like that, because they're short chapters. So, in fact, this story is packed with so many amazing lessons uh, that I have actually worked really hard this week, and I've been able to uh, compress that into a slim 90-minute talk. So mark your, uh, you know, mark your calendars. We'll be out of here um, within the next quarter. Now. The last thing I'll say before I dive in is I've really heard some amazing teachings on uh, this story. And so I don't want to give the impression that this is some you know, n- new revelation. Uh, I've really been blessed by learning from some really awesome teachers. So if you say, oh man, that really hit me, um, and, and I want to learn more about it, feel free to reach out to me, and I'll hand you some of those sources. Now, the story I'll be sharing with you this morning comes from 2 Kings chapter 5 in the Old Testament, and my wife will tell you that I love context. Anybody else love context? You love all the little details? Bless you. Praise the Lord. Uh, I am such a fan of context. I am utterly incapable. Like I, I am humanly incapable of answering a question quickly. I am utterly horrible at getting straight to the point. My wife, and she's over there, she's like, yes, this is what I've been telling you about. She can ask me a yes or no question, and my answer will be something to the effect of, well, it depends. There's a lot of schools of thought on this subject. Let's explore each one. Um, In fact, she knows not to ask me a question after 9 p.m. Okay, it's just like, what do you want for breakfast tomorrow? I'm like, I don't know. Let's sit down and talk about it. Let's have a good long conversation because she knows it's going to be at least an hour and she wants to go to bed. So just ask her. It drives her bananas. So with that caveat being thrown out there, I want to set the scene for you a little bit before we dive in to the story. So let's start at the beginning. Genesis 1-1. In the beginning... (laughs) I'm not kidding. I'm just kidding. You're right. Okay, so 2 Kings 5, we're going to meet the prophet Elisha. Now, you've probably heard his name. You're probably more familiar with his mentor, who Elisha was a disciple of and became a successor of, and that's the prophet Elijah. Now, Elijah and Elisha were called by God to be tellers of truth. Okay, not just predictors of the future, but essentially mouthpieces, vessels of God's word to, at this time, what is a split kingdom. Israel has split into two Judah to the south and Israel to the north. So Elisha is now a prophet to the people of Israel who oftentimes have lost their way. And if you're keeping track at home, it's around the year 850 BC. And right now you're really starting to feel sorry for my wife, aren't you? So, let's dive into the text with that in mind 2nd Kings 5 starting in verse 1 says this Naaman commander of the army of the king of Syria was a great man with his master and in high favor because by him the Lord had given victory to Syria he was a mighty man of valor but he was a leper now the Syrians on one of their raids had carried off a little girl from the land of Israel, and she worked in the service of Naaman's wife. She said to her mistress, would that my lord were with the prophet who was in Samaria? He would cure him of his leprosy. So Naaman went in and told his lord thus, and so spoke the girl from the land of Israel. And the king of Syria said, go now, and I will send a letter to the king of Israel." so here we have naaman who the bible calls a great man in the hebrew this is going to be the phrase ish gadol ish gadol means great he's highly favored we see his exploits here he's a man of valor he's had many victories which is interesting because it says that his victories for syria this pagan nation that is to the north of israel have been given to him by who by the Lord. Now, I'm not even going to dive into that conundrum, but you can just digest that on your own. The fact that this man's valor, his reputation, his resume has come as a gift from the Lord, despite him not even being in the covenant of the Lord's people. However, Naaman, despite his valor, despite his position, despite his favor, He has a problem. He's afflicted with what could become a terminal illness of leprosy. Now, the Bible uses leprosy to cover a lot of various uh, skin conditions. We don't know if it's, you know, stage three. We we, we have no idea. His fingers and toes are probably not falling off at this point as you kind of think about lepers, probably because he's still commanding the army. But it could result in his death. We just don't know. So it says in the rest of verse 5, he went, taking with him 10 talents of silver, 6,000 shekels of gold, and 10 changes of clothing. That's about 1,000 pounds of silver and gold if you're keeping score at home. And in verse 6, he brought the letter to the king of Israel, which read, when this letter reaches you, know that I have sent to you Naaman my servant, that you may cure him of his leprosy. that he may know that there is a prophet in Israel. That's like, man, gives you shivers kind of a line. Send him to me, he'll know there's a prophet in Israel. There's a word for that phrase. I can't use it in church, but there's a word for it, okay? I mean, I want to try that on for myself. Be like, oh, your kid don't know jack about the Constitution? Send him to me, and he will know there's a history teacher in (laughs) Skiatuk, I'm a history teacher in Skytuk, by the way, just for context, <laughs> for context, you guys are like, why do we have to go to Skyatuk and learn about history, what's going on here, okay, so it, it doesn't quite have the same ring, not the same power, so we're going we're to leave it with Elisha being a prophet, but nonetheless, a powerful statement, verse 9, so Naaman came with his horses and chariots, and stood at the door of Elisha's house, and Elisha sent a a messenger to him saying, go and wash in the Jordan seven times and your flesh shall be restored and you shall be clean. But Naaman was angry and went away saying, behold, I thought that he would surely come out to me and stand and call upon the name of the Lord, his God, and wave his hand over the place and cure the leper. Are not the Arbana and Parpar, the rivers of Damascus, better than all the waters of Israel? Could I not wash in them and be clean? So he turned away and went away in a rage. So here's Naaman, who's come from Syria, probably hundreds of miles, with a 1,000 pounds of gold and silver. He's come with this huge entourage of all of his servants. He's come to the palace of the king, and then he's going to the house of Elisha the prophet. And when he gets his message, souvenir, when he gets his message of how he can be clean, what does he do? He storms away. Why? Because Naaman is an ish He's a great man. He's a mighty man. Who did the girl say could cleanse him to the, in the first place? The prophet. Where does he go? He goes to the king. Because I go to the palace. That's where people like me go to. I'm not going to go to some man of God's house who doesn't even come to the door to greet me. Are you kidding me? I'm an Ishgadol. Do you know who I am? I'm expecting you to come out and, and do this, man, this, this pomp and circumstance, all this pageantry to heal me. You're going to call down fire. You're going to cleanse me by waving your hand over me. But instead, you want me to go to a Muddy Creek 30 miles away and take a bath seven times? Do you know who I am? Do you know what I'm capable of? Naaman is proud. And it's his pride that stands in the way of his healing. He expects nothing less than what his status as an Ishkadol would deserve and would typically receive in order to match his expectations of healing. So our first lesson from Naaman today is this. Are you willing to receive what it is that God wants to give you? Or does it have to be on your terms? When we seek God in prayer and petition, what is the attitude of our hearts? Be honest. Do you trust and believe that God knows what you need, when you need it, and if you need it? Or do you believe that you're smarter than God and you come with expectations like Naaman? Now, I'll be honest. I have thought I've been smarter than God before. I think I've, pre- I've one of the very first messages I preached at City Church years ago. I talked about how, in 2015, I stepped down from being a youth pastor. At, um, at Life Church. And I felt the leading of God to do that. And my expectation was that God was going to open this new ministry door and he was going to take me somewhere uh, that you know, resonated more and was uh, just cooler. And, and it was just going to be somewhere in ministry because that was familiar to me. And so I expect, okay, God, I'll obey you here. And then you're going to do something unforeseen and really, really cool. But God didn't meet my expectations. Instead, God sent me to a warehouse for two years to break me of my ministry idolatry. God sent me to work in a warehouse in Pryor, Oklahoma to teach me that I had been worshiping at the altar of ministry. He loved you that much. Yes, he did. He loved me that much to send me to a place that I didn't want to go to teach me that Craig, just regular Craig, is just as valuable as when people call me Pastor Craig. And that I didn't need a position and a title to know that I am valuable, that I have a ministry. Because he's called me to it, not because I work at a church. And it took me two years of being in that warehouse for God to humble me. And like me, Naaman is going to have to have his heart healed before he can have his body healed. Naaman will have to have his heart healed before God could heal his body. We continue the story in verse 13. But his servants, Naaman's servants, came near and said to him, my father, it is a great word the prophets have spoken to you. Will you not do it? Has he actually said to you, wash and be clean? This is pretty bold of Naaman's servants to come and ask, didn't the prophet give you simple instructions? I mean, we've come all this way, Naaman. And I I know you really expected this other thing, but it sounds like a good deal to me. And so what does Naaman do? We're not told the, the internal struggle. We're not told about the blinding light. But we see in verse 14, that he does agree. He goes down and dips himself seven times in the Jordan according to the word of the man of God, and his flesh was restored like the flesh of a little child, and he was clean. Then he returned to the man of God, he and all his company, and he came and stood before him, and he said, Behold, I know that there is no God in all the earth but in Israel. Behold, I know that there is no God in all the earth but in Israel. Israel. Can't be overstated how powerful and revolutionary this statement is. We have to consider the times in which this is being spoken. Israel is completely alone, if not extremely rare, at least extremely rare, in their monotheism, their belief that there is but one God because almost all of the nations practice a variety of polytheism. They have a pantheon of gods that they worship, that they, uh, that they pray to, a god for fertility, a god for agriculture, a god for rain, a god for war. And yet here is Naaman, who receives this healing, and he says, nobody's God but Yahweh. There is one He has completely deserted this polytheistic belief and converted to this belief in the God of Israel, Yahweh. Now, this isn't exactly the kind of conversion story we think about in modern terms, the kind of testimony of someone coming to the faith. But this is the same confession of faith as someone today proclaiming Jesus is Lord. There is no other. It is the same thing. So he goes on and says, so accept now a present from your servant. Hold on to that, what he calls himself, your servant, we'll get to it. But Elisha said, as the Lord lives before whom I stand, I will receive none. And he urged him to take it, but Elisha refused. Then Naaman said, if not, please let there be given to your servant two mule loads of earth, for from now on your servant will not offer burnt offering or sacrifice to any God but the Lord. Now there's a couple powerful things happening here. Number one, we see the transformation of Naaman's heart as well as his body. What did he come in saying? I'm a great man, you don't treat me like this. You send a messenger to the door and tell me how to be healed? How dare you, I am out of here. And what does he say now? I'm your servant. This humility, this transformation has happened in his heart. And secondly, why does Naaman want dirt? He says, If you won't take what I've brought, the silver and gold, then can I take enough dirt to load up two mules so that I can go back and worship God? What's going on here? Well, we just talked about how he has a belief, a system of belief that has accustomed him to believe that there is a God for each region or people group of the earth. There are local or geographic deities. And we can forgive his very elementary understanding of the God of the universe because he's sort of a baby Christian. And he says, I want to worship God alone. And if I go back to Syria, because what did he say? He didn't say God of Israel. He said God in Israel. So he believes this is where God is and he's really here. But he says, but I got to go back to Syria and I know, you know, there are false gods there. I don't believe in them, but how do I worship God there he says well if I can just take enough dirt then I'll lay it down in front of my house and I can make sacrifices there gotta love just even the immaturity but just the beauty of this request from Naaman even though he doesn't understand you can tell he desires to worship the Lord and perhaps aware of his returning to a place void of and possibly hostile to the worship of the true God. Naaman asked his most important question in verse 18. He says this, "'In this matter, may the Lord pardon your servant. When my master, the king of Syria, goes into the house of Ramon,' who's a local god, a, a, a false god there in Syria, to worship there, leaning on my arm and I bow myself in the house of Ramon. When I bow myself in the house of Ramon, the Lord pardon your servant, In this matter. Naaman is no longer a worshiper or a believer in Ramon. He's proclaimed a belief in the God in Israel, Yahweh, the one true God, but his master, the king of Syria, still is. And part of his job as second in command, he says that I enter this temple of Ramon, and he leans on my arm. And when he bows down to worship Ramon, I assist him, and I bow down with him, and I don't want to do this, and I'm praying, will God pardon your servant? Naaman wants to do right before the Lord and worship him alone. He's already stated he doesn't believe in any other God but the God of Israel, but his circumstance troubles him, and he's unsure what to do. Now, if we pause here, and some of you know the rest of the story. But if we pause here and we ask ourselves honestly, what do we expect the prophet to say? What would you in modern Christendom in your church and Christian story expect the prophet to say? We'd probably expect a bold, straightforward, maybe even a sharp reply from the man of God. We might expect the prophet to say something like, you shall never again enter the temple of Christ. Ramon, for this is idolatry. The law of Moses in his first commandment on the Mount of Sinai says, you shall have no other gods before me. Choose this day whom you will serve, Naaman, Ramon, or Yahweh. Whatever you might lose, Naaman, this is the cost of discipleship. Do or do not, there is no try. That last one was actually Yoda from Star Wars but I still think it applies. (laughs) The point is, I think if we're honest, we expect the prophet to be unambiguous. Naaman, it's black and white. You either worship the Lord or you don't. Choose this day. So what does Elisha say? Verse 19, his last words to Naaman. He said to him, go in peace. That's it. It's the only thing he says before he sends name and back to his native land, go in peace. Now the Hebrew for this phrase is Lamech Le Shalom. Go in Shalom. And we're familiar with this word Shalom, but it means a lot more than we think. This idea of Shalom means more than just tranquility or without trouble. It means completeness soundness welfare and peace with God especially in a covenantal relationship so instead of directly answering Naaman's question Elisha simply tells him God is with you yes your circumstance is difficult yes you're probably going to be worshiping Yahweh alone in hostile territory yeah that's a tough one but God is with you. This isn't to say that there aren't times when there's an objective right or wrong that we must choose from. That's not to say that there are not times where there is a consequence. There is sometimes even suffering. Jesus said as much. In this life, you will have trouble. He talks about, hey, you'll be persecuted when you love me, but remember, they hated me first. They persecuted me. So there's clearly that expectation. And I love the way that the Cambridge Bible commentary describes this. It says, we are not to consider this answer as implying that service of God and service of Rahman might be combined without any incongruity. The prophet appears rather to be willing to leave the good seed already sown to bear fruit in due season. Being sown of God, it must multiply and peace would be the result of its further development. God is at work In Naaman. And the greatest thing that Elisha can give him is a reminder that the God of the universe is not just in Israel, he's not in the dirt that you're gonna take with you, but he is everywhere. And he's with you now, Naaman, and he'll be with you when you return home. Some of you this morning might be facing some impossible situations. Some of you are dealing with tension and conflict and uncertainty and would love nothing more than clarity, or at least the acknowledgement from God. I know you're desperate for an answer. Like Naaman, your desire is to do right, but you don't know what that looks like. There's tension between your faith and your job. There's tension in your marriage with your parents children with your friends you feel the weight of being sanctified and set apart yet living in and amongst a seemingly godless world many of us think that God is in the alleviation or the taking away of our tension rather it is God that is with us in the tension We think that God's in the removal of conflict, that if we have conflict in our lives, somehow that means I don't have enough faith. I'm not reading my Bible enough. I'm not giving enough. I'm not getting it right. And yet it's God who desires to be with us through the conflict. John 16, seven, Jesus tells his disciples this. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away for if I do not go away the helper will not come to you but if i go i will send him to you jesus states he will send the holy spirit not a rule book not a road map not a blueprint not a list of do's and don'ts but the holy spirit the person of the holy spirit if you are like me and you're a clarity addict and you're desperate to get it right, you want guidance and solutions, but God wants to give you the guide and the savior. There's a common phrase that I've heard a lot of Christians use, and I've used it myself, so there's no, uh, you know, no offense uh, intended. But we say the Bible is our owner's manual for life. But this is wildly insufficient, if not downright false. Why? Because the Bible is more than just a book of rules and how-tos, but it's a window through which we behold a person, Jesus Christ. John 5, 39 through 40 says this, You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life, and it is they that bear witness about me. Yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life it's not in having all the right answers to all of life's problems that we have life rather we have life through the person of jesus christ what do we see throughout all scripture from the garden to the tabernacle to the temple to the birth of christ to the giving of the holy spirit god desires to dwell with and be with his people emmanuel god with us what does he say? I will be your God, you will be my people. Whatever your situation today, no matter the tension, no matter how difficult or impossible it may seem, the words of the prophet to Naaman are true for you today, Lech le shalom. God is with you. And as Charles Spurgeon once said, I am with you always, is enough for my soul to live upon no matter who forsakes me. Let's pray. Father, I thank you. I thank you for every soul that is in this place. And I pray, God, as a seed has been sown through your word, that you would do a work, that you would finish it, Lord. You are the author and the finisher of our faith. So God, today, I just pray for those, Lord, who are experiencing tension, conflict, and uncertainty. Their desire is to know you, to please you, to glorify you. But maybe things don't make sense. Maybe they're doing everything they knew to do, and yet the results are not happening as they expected. I pray, God, that you would give them the peace that comes only from you that surpasses all understanding, that Naaman could leave to go back into a godless society and still experience peace, knowing that you are with us. And may that be enough. As we continue in an attitude of prayer, an attitude of reflection, as we move into this time of communion, I encourage you to think about that fact, that God is with us. stand with me this morning as we prepare to partake in communion. First, let us read our table liturgy together. For the weary, the table is our rest. For the burdened, the table is God's embrace. For the sick, the table is heaven touching earth. For the doubting and confused, the table is God's mystery revealed. For the bitter and hurting, the table is God taking our pain. For the anxious and worried, the table is our immovable hope. For the divided and disconnected, the table is where we become one. For the unbeliever, the table is an invitation to take Christ. At the table, we declare Christ has died, Christ has risen, Christ will come again. On the night that Christ was to be Betrayed, he sat with his disciples in the upper room preparing for the Passover meal. And you talk about uncertainty. Here's a group of most likely teenagers, maybe young adults if history is accurate, maybe young adults, probably teenagers, who Christ has been hinting at him leaving, him being killed, him leaving them after three years and the uncertainty that these disciples must have felt that night. What is he talking about? Where is he going? We're not ready. We don't know enough yet. We're not far enough along. We don't, we're not adequate. And yet, what does Jesus do? But he says, I will be with you always. And what I go to do, you can't do for yourselves. Because my body, is going to be broken for you. And symbolically, as we break the bread, it is a reminder that Christ was broken for us. And as we take the cup, we remember that his blood was poured out as a sign of the new covenant. That we were not dependent upon sacrifices. We're not dependent upon going to the priest at the right time of year. But that Jesus would become the atonement for us and that even as he said I will go away but I'm sending the Holy Spirit I will be with you in spirit and as he says in the very last statement of the book of Matthew and surely I am with you always even to the very end of the age so if you're here this morning and you are hungry for more of Christ or maybe you're in a place where there's a lot of uncertainty in you and you think I don't know what's real I don't know what's not But I believe there's hope in Jesus, you are welcome. We practice open communion here, which means if you are hungry for Christ, you are welcome. You don't have to, you're more than welcome to stay, reflect on this, pray, meditate. But if you are hungry for Christ, we encourage you to come after we pray. Father, we thank you for the bread. We thank you for the cup. We thank you that you did what we never could. Lord, in a million years, we can never even begin to repay you, Lord, for the cost of the bread and the cup. Jesus, we receive today because we are hungry for more of you. We take the bread, Lord, in remembrance that you were broken, that we may be made whole. And we take the cup, Lord, remembering that it is your shed blood that covers our sins. Jesus, may we come today in remembrance of you, and may you meet us here as you say you will. At this time, if you are ready to come, you'll move to your right and down to our prayer and communion team that has the elements for you. Won't you now come?